Welcome to Kindred Spirits Book Club, the podcast where two grown-ass ladies geek out about Anne of Green Gables. That's right, you're home now. I'm Kelly Gurner, and I'm joined by my co-host, Regan Duffy. Hello, friends. Regan, would you please introduce our Kindred Spirits for this episode? I would be delighted. Today on Kindred Spirits Book Club, we are talking about Mrs. Rachel Lind, Mrs. Barry, and Mrs. Allen. In our Marilla episode, we discuss the ways that Marilla stands outside the boundaries of what we might expect for women of that period. And in our episode about Mr. Phillips and Miss Stacy, we talked about how Miss Stacy likewise was pioneering for her time. Today, we're going to delve into the other adult women characters in this book, all of whom are perhaps a bit more conventional in terms of their roles in the community, and look at how they influenced Anne. Our quote of the episode is a bit long, but it really captures Mrs. Lind and her role in the community, and it also helps introduce Mrs. Allen. So we begin with Anne telling Marilla how pleased she is that Mr. Allen will be Avonlea's new minister. Anne says, I'm very glad they've called Mr. Allen. I liked him because his sermon was interesting, and he prayed as if he meant it and not just as if he did it because he was in the habit of it. Mrs. Lynn says he isn't perfect, but she says she supposes we can't expect a perfect minister for $750 a year, and anyhow, his theology is sound because she questioned him thoroughly on all the points of doctrine. And she knows his wife's people, and they are most respectable, and the women are all good housekeepers. Mrs. Lind says that sound doctrine in a man and good housekeeping in a woman make an ideal combination for a minister's family. The new minister and his wife were a young, pleasant-faced couple, still on their honeymoon and full of all good and beautiful enthusiasms for their chosen life work. Avonlea opened its heart to them from the start. Old and young liked the frank, cheerful young man with his high ideals and the bright, gentle little lady who assumed the mistress of the manse. With Mrs. Allen, Anne fell promptly and wholeheartedly in love. She had discovered another kindred spirit. So we can see here a little bit about two of our kindred spirits. Mrs. Lind is clearly opinionated and proud of it. She's the upholder of the expectations of women in the community and perhaps a bit conservative about women's roles. And we learn that Mrs. Allen is young and enthusiastic, just right for being a role model for Anne. Someone like Mrs. Lind is too far away from Anne's youth to be a real model of womanhood. Anne can't see herself in Mrs. Lind, but she certainly can in Mrs. Allen. Now, before we jump into our story club segment for the episode, we want to pause for a brief housekeeping moment. Mrs. Rachel Lind is called by several names in the book. Mrs. Rachel, Mrs. Lind, and Mrs. Rachel Lind. Marilla even gets to call her Rachel. We are going to try to call her Mrs. Lind in this episode, but do know that she is a woman of many names. We've called her both Mrs. Lind and Mrs. Rachel in past episodes, so just to clarify, we are talking about the same woman. I mean, you really have to have a big personality to have as many names as she does. Absolutely. And you know that somebody like Anne would never get to call Mrs. Lind by her first name. No, I know Marilla really does have a place of honor there. I think everyone else in Avonlea is very deferential to Mrs. Lind, and maybe the most familiar they would be would be to call her Mrs. Rachel. 
Yes. And there's a little tidbit early on in which uh, Mrs. Lynn's husband is Mr. Thomas Lind, but most people just refer to him as Mr. Rachel Lind. Amazing. Amazing. Mrs. Lind, Mrs. Barry, and Mrs. Allen are the three Avonlea women that Anne has the most contact with outside of Marilla and Miss Stacy. They're all married, and each embodies a different role in the community that matches up with their ages and place in life. Mrs. Lind is older. We understand her to be a contemporary of Marilla's, and she's raised her children already. She is Avonlea's central nervous system in a way. All information flows through her. As a storytelling device, Mrs. Lind functions as a sort of Greek chorus, reacting to Marilla and Anne and the events that take place around her, and giving the reader an idea of how those stories will be repeated through the town gossip mill. Mrs. Lind is also, it has to be said, a very funny character. She is a self-proclaimed expert on pretty much everything, from quilt making to child rearing to scripture to politics. And while Maud treats Mrs. Lynn's all-encompassing expertise with an arch humor, the people in Avonlea seem to respect her opinions about most things. Although Marilla definitely seems to treat Mrs. Lynn's opinions with a healthy sprinkle of skepticism. The book tells us, There are plenty of people in Avonlea and out of it who can attend closely to their neighbor's business by dint of neglecting their own, but Mrs. Rachel Lind was one of those capable creatures who can manage their own concerns and those of other folks in the bargain. And Mrs. Lind is somebody who feels it is her absolute duty to manage the concerns of other folks as well. Well, I mean... She knows how to do it right, so why wouldn't she share that with everybody else? She's really doing them all a favor. Right? Mrs. Allen, on the other hand, is a young married woman, not yet a mother, but still very involved in Avonlea community life. She comes into the book at about the halfway point, but she is not a total Avonlea outsider. Mrs. Lynn tells Marilla that she knows Mrs. Allen's family and approves of them. As the minister's wife, Mrs. Allen will be one of the cornerstones in Avonlea social life, responsible for organizing charity events, visiting members of the parish, aiding the sick and infirm, and most importantly to Anne, teaching Sunday school. We know the least about Mrs. Barry, and it might seem unusual to group her with two characters who have so much more time on the page, but we included her because Mrs. Barry represents a typical Avonlea mother. In contrast, in the Marilla episode, we spoke about how Marilla was not the typical Avonlea mother and how that allowed her to forge her own path in raising Anne. Mrs. Barry, on the other hand, is very much constrained by her place in the community. She's a farmer's wife, busily raising daughters to be good wives themselves. We know that she's very involved in the community and that reputation means a lot to her. Mrs. Barry wants Diana to be popular and well-liked which we can see because Diana wears pretty clothes and is permitted to go to social events and outings, while Marilla dresses Anne plainly and seems suspicious of too much fun. Mrs. Barry wants Diana to be a wife and a homemaker, which we see because Diana isn't allowed to study for the Queen's entrance exams, while Marilla knows that Anne should be able to make a choice about whether to marry or support herself, and she encourages Anne to go to Queen's. When we think about the ways that Anne and Marilla are doing things differently than the other women in the town, we look to Diana and Mrs. Barry for that counterpoint. With each one of these women, Mrs. Lind, Mrs. Barry, and Mrs. Allen, Anne must first endure an ordeal before she earns their acceptance and trust. The ways that the women react to those unpromising beginnings tells the reader so much about who each of them are and the impact that they will have on Anne. Mrs. Lind, of course, is insulted by Anne after she calls Anne a homely child with hair as red as carrots. 
Maude tells us right from the beginning of Anne's first encounter with Mrs. Lynde that Mrs. Rachel was one of those delightful and popular people who pride themselves on speaking their mind without fear or favor. <laughs> In this case, she oversteps good manners and tact by a very wide margin, whether that's because she's truly that tactless or somewhat out of sorts between recovering from her own illness and the fact that Marilla had not asked for her opinion in the regard of either sending for an orphan or determining to keep Anne. God we don't know. Yeah. But I certainly hope that combination of factors makes Mrs. Lynde more sharp than she generally would have been. Anne's temper flares and she tells Mrs. Lynde that she hates her, that she is rude, unfeeling, fat, clumsy, and surely worst of all, that she has no imagination. Mrs. Lynde is properly scandalized, tells Marilla she's making the mistake of her life by taking Anne in, and leaves Green Gables in high dudgeon. Such an iconic moment. Absolutely. Mrs. Barry and Mrs. Allen likewise endured terrible Anne-inflicted disasters. Mrs. Barry suffered the tragedy of her daughter drunk on currant wine, and Mrs. Allen ate a slice of cake liberally flavored with anodyne liniment. Oh, yeah, don't worry. We'll we'll get there. We're going to unpack the whole anodyne liniment situation. <laughs> but what's really compelling here is how the three women responded to Anne when she came to apologize to each one of them for causing the predicament. After Anne presented Mrs. Lynde with her grandiose declaration of penitence, Mrs. Lynde accepted it gracefully, failing, of course, to notice that Anne was enjoying the drama of the moment. And Mrs. Lynde apologized back to Anne. Maybe she realized how badly she overstepped, and Anne's apology makes room for Mrs. Lynde to lean into her more generous spirit than in their first meeting. It's a lovely moment, and it demonstrates that while Mrs. Lynde may also have a temper, she's good-hearted to her core and willing to give Anne the benefit of the doubt. There, there, get up, child, she said heartily. Of course I forgive you. I guess I was a little too hard on you anyway. But I'm such an outspoken person. You just mustn't mind me, that's what. It can't be denied that your hair is terrible, Red. But I knew a girl once, went to school with her in fact, whose hair was every mite as red as yours when she was young. But when she grew up, it darkened into a real handsome auburn. I wouldn't be a mite surprised if yours did too. Not a mite. Oh, Mrs. Lynde. Anne drew a long breath as she rose to her feet. You have given me a hope. I shall always feel that you are a benefactor. Mrs. Lynde is quite generous with Anne. Now, it may be that Anne's speech just happened to neatly align with the level of esteem that Mrs. Lynde felt that she deserved, but it's important that she doesn't just accept Anne's apology, she returns it, and she gives Anne a kind word about her hair, now knowing that it's a sore spot for Anne. Mrs. Lynde is a mother of grown children, apparently 10 children. Good night. Yeah, that was a close reading to pick that one up. Whoa. Where yeah. are these children? Where are the, the, the many Lynde children? I have questions about that. Too. Or maybe another book. Yeah. <laughs> and while Mrs. Lynde expects children to be well-behaved, and for her, that means deferential to their elders, she also has practical experience in raising kids and knows they make mistakes and are learning. This is the first instance of several where we see the softer side of Mrs. Lynde, someone who understands children and childhood, even when she purports to maintain only the highest standards for decorum. Mrs. Lynde teaches Anne a gentle lesson too, by showing Anne that she isn't too proud to take responsibility for her actions and isn't too stingy not to extend an olive branch to Anne 
and offer a second chance at community. And really, let's face it, Mrs. Lynde's approval is crucial to success in Avonlea. We learn throughout the book that Mrs. Lynde is pretty much the social center of town and very little happens without her knowledge or approval. If Mrs. Lynde had held a grudge against Anne, there's no way Anne would have been easily accepted by the town at large. As we've discussed in previous episodes, Marilla and Matthew are very reserved and don't have that same amount of social capital to smooth the way for someone as unorthodox as Anne. Mrs. Lynde really ends up being a champion for Anne in a lot of ways. She truly, truly cheers for her. Yeah. So then, of course, in contrast to Mrs. Lynde is the encounter with Mrs. Barry. Now, we had briefly met Mrs. Barry early on in the book on the day that Anne meets Diana. The book tells us that Mrs. Barry was a tall, black-eyed, black-haired woman with a very resolute mouth. She had the reputation of being very strict with her children. We don't see too much more of her until the fateful raspberry cordial incident, but we already have a little hint that Mrs. Barry is much more rigid than Mrs. Lynde. After Anne invites Diana to tea and mistakenly serves Diana current wine instead of raspberry cordial, Diana is drunk and goes home very ill. Anne is perplexed and worried about her sick friend. She later learns that she intoxicated Diana and she feels terribly about it, but Anne's too nervous to apologize to Mrs. Barry. At this point, we don't know too much about Mrs. Barry as a character, but we do know that Diana is a very prim and proper young girl, and the reader can infer with Anne that Mrs. Barry is going to be very angry. Marilla thinks it might be best to speak to Mrs. Barry first to explain Anne's error, and she goes off to smooth it out. Marilla returns with this to say, Mrs. Barry indeed, snapped Marilla. Of all the unreasonable women I ever saw, she's the worst. I told her it was all a mistake and you weren't to blame, but she just simply didn't believe me. And she rubbed it well in about my current wine and how I'd always said it couldn't have the least effect on anybody. I just told her plainly that current wine wasn't meant to be drunk three tumblerfuls at a time, and that if a child I had to do with was so greedy, I'd sober her up with a right good spanking. Well, that certainly didn't go as hoped. I'm not sure if Marilla's tack was quite what was needed there. Well, it didn't make things better. Nope. But I think it was in response to Mrs. Barry holding such a hard line. Yeah. So Anne then takes it upon herself to visit Mrs. Barry and apologize. Very brave, considering what Marilla has just been through. But you have to think, this is her bosom friend on the line. And I mean, I think she was really genuinely very concerned about Diana, too. Yeah, but still, that's very admirable in her, that she's willing to beard the lion in the den, so to speak. It really is. Anne steals away while Marilla is making dinner. And as she did with Mrs. Lynde, Anne gives a very sincere apology, although one that was nearly as flowery as the one she offered to Mrs. Lynde. She can't help herself. No, she can't. Mrs. Barry responds coldly, telling Anne she isn't a fit child for Diana to play with and sending her home. Maud tells us two things about this interaction. First, that the apology was certainly enough to soften a heart like Mrs. Lynde's. And second, that Mrs. Barry genuinely believed Anne knowingly intoxicated Diana on purpose and that she perceived Anne's apology as mocking. <sighs> the text says, Mrs. Barry was a woman of strong prejudices and dislikes and her anger was of the cold, sullen sort, which is always the hardest to overcome. There is an awful lot to unpack in this short but heartbreaking scene. 
We know that Anne did not make Diana drunk on purpose, and we know that Anne's apology was sincere. We also know that Mrs. Lind, who has a very high expectation for behavior in children, would have accepted Anne's apology and has done so in the past. For the reader who was on Anne's side, Mrs. Berry's response feels cruel in its stubborn refusal to see Anne's genuine remorse. Surely there's no reason to be more of a stickler for proper behavior than Mrs. Lind. Yes, but let's look at what we know about Mrs. Berry. She's a mother to two young girls, Diana and Minnie Mae. Diana, as we've discussed at length in our Diana episode, is a nearly perfect girl, pretty and gentle, well-mannered and sweet. And it matters a great deal to Mrs. Berry to have a well-behaved child. And for good reason, Mrs. Berry knows that Diana will eventually have to marry for her security. Mrs. Berry's deep motivation when it comes to Diana is preserving her reputation as a sweet, gentle, polite girl so Diana will be able to marry someone who can take care of her. A rumor that she was stumbling across the fields drunk is a direct and tangible threat to Diana's reputation and her eventual marriage ability. Diana's reputation is the most important thing she has to ensure her safety and her future happiness. So Mrs. Berry isn't just concerned about morals and propriety in a vague sense, she's genuinely worried for Diana's future. Cast in that light, Mrs. Berry's refusal to permit Anne and Diana to play together seems reasonable and even prudent. Maybe. <laughs> it still seems pretty harsh. It does seem harsh. That Marilla is even sharing that Anne truly didn't mean it and here's how the mistake happened. And it is truly harsh. And I think that Mrs. Berry, if better angels had prevailed, could have asked Diana maybe what had happened instead of leaping to conclusions. But I think the point that I'm driving at here is that for Mrs. Berry, and in her mind, any threat to Diana's reputation is essentially an existential threat to her daughter. Her whole sort of object in raising her daughters is to make sure they're marriageable. If something were to happen to jeopardize that, I mean, that's jeopardizing everything. I suppose that's true. And then you add to that the one other thing that we know about Mrs. Berry you know, Maude tells us that she genuinely believed that Anne got Diana drunk on purpose and then believed that Anne was making fun of her when Anne came to apologize. And Mrs. Berry is wrong, but that's what she honestly believed. And we have to remember, Mrs. Berry is not a worldly woman, and Anne, being an orphan of unknown origins, just inspired suspicion. It's dreadfully unfair to Anne, of course, and it is a tragic setback for Anne and Diana's friendship. But I do think you can follow Mrs. Berry's logic. And I guess... When we think about all the warnings Mrs. Lind has given about orphans who have done terrible things to their adoptive families, I bet Mrs. Berry has heard some of those same stories. So why wouldn't she believe that about Anne? Right. Anne is really singular in Avonlea in that she is able to make inroads into what is a very insular community. Yeah. So any kind of misstep, I mean, we read these foibles and missteps for comedy, but it's it's a problem for Anne. She has to learn to overcome these things. But of course, eventually Anne does make it back into Mrs. Berry's good graces at the cost, of course, of saving Minnie Mae's life. She has to go to kind of an extreme. It really is. <laughs> Anne eventually tells Marilla that Mrs. Berry kissed me and cried and said she was so sorry and that she could never repay me. And Mrs. Berry, while never, of course, reaching kindred spirit levels, does include Anne in many special activities with Diana going forward, and it's no longer begrudging on her part at all. Yeah, she really is able to 
have a real turnaround with Anne. And Mm -hmm. while we don't ever really see the two of them connecting, allowing Anne to do so much with Diana and be so much a part of Diana's life is the gift. That that is the gift. And that and that is Mrs. Berry demonstrating her capacity for forgiveness. Yeah. Standing in stark contrast to Mrs. Berry is Mrs. Allen, the minister's wife. Mrs. Allen, as we've said, is young, a newlywed, and she and Mr. Allen do not yet have children. Mrs. Allen is instantly a favorite of Anne's, who is enchanted by her fashionable dress and her prettiness. Anne tells Marilla that Mrs. Allen is pretty, but not truly lovely, but that's good because a minister with a too beautiful wife would set a bad example. I swear, this stuff is hilarious. What a fine line to walk. Pretty, but not too pretty. These books are so funny. And just like the idea of a minister's wife should be pretty, but not too pretty. It's, uh, I just love it. Well, there's such a way of equating prettiness with goodness that I think happens. So shortly after the Allens arrive in town, Marilla, Anne, and Matthew have the Allens over for tea. Anne is beyond excited. She decorates the tables with roses and ferns, very artfully arranged. She had obtained Marilla's permission to do so by remarking that Mrs. Barry decorated her table and the minister commented on it very favorably. (laughs) Crafty Anne, she knows. (laughs) She She knows knows. some ways to, to get to Marilla. Yep. But most importantly, Anne bakes a layer cake, especially for Mrs. Allen, caring so much about impressing Mrs. Allen, she even has nightmares about her cake going wrong. It's so funny that she has her layer cake nightmares. Oh, and, she, you know, very interesting foreshadowing. Exactly. She dreams that the layer cake is like chasing her around the kitchen. Yes. <laughs> the visit, it goes really well. The Allens compliment Marilla on the lovely table, who passes the praise along to Anne because Marilla is awesome at giving credit where it's due. Mm -hmm. He is going wonderfully. And at the end, Mrs. Allen declines the cake, having indulged in a, quote, bewildering variety already. Possibly what's happening is that she's been eating out at every home in Avonlea for the past several weeks and has had to take a slice home of every cook's specialty desserts with varying results. I mean, could you imagine you're new in town? It's, you know, the thing to do is to have you and your husband over for dinner and every single person is coming out with their most special cake or their most special pie or tart or whatever it is. Not all of those are going to be winners, Reagan. Right. Or even just on a personal level where you're all like, oh, cherry pie. Again. Yay. Marilla tells Mrs. Allen that Anne made the cake especially for her. And so Mrs. Allen accepts a plump slice. Mrs. Allen takes a bite, makes a face, and keeps eating. This is bonkers to me. She keeps eating. She just plows through. What on earth has this poor woman been eating that she just keeps eating this cake? You know, you figure that as a new minister's wife, it's important that she's the bridge to the women in town, sort of the church ambassador. She could absolutely never insult any of the households she visits. Could you imagine if she had said something tasted bad to the wrong lady in town? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. She'd never be a successful minister's wife if rumors spread that she was rude or judgy or uptight or any of those sort of things. Well, and just imagine she sees that the Cuthberts live right next door to Mrs. Lind. And so she knows that anything that goes down is going to get back to her. 
and I love it that she tries so hard. It's not that she even makes a big face. She just, it says right. a queer expression. Right. That she's trying really hard not to let on. She's trying, she didn't even want the cake in the first place, Reagan. That is the best part. She was like, I couldn't, please, no more dessert. Oh gosh. Well, so of course, sure enough, Anne has mistaken the vanilla for anodyne liniment and the cake tastes awful. Marilla takes the cake from Mrs. Allen and Anne runs to her room crying. We also need to talk about how Marilla had to take the cake from Mrs. Allen. <laughs> right. No, but no, she don't just gonna keep eating this. This is legitimately horrible. Anyway, oh my gosh, <laughs> let's pause for a quick sidebar on anodyne liniment. We had previously speculated that anodyne liniment was something akin to Vicks, a sort of like cure-all for colds and other minor ailments, and that turned out to be a pretty good guess. Anodyne liniment was a widely available medicine sold to treat headaches, colds, sore throats, burns, something called chillblains, and pretty much any sort of generic aches and pains. It would have smelled like camphor, so quite a pungent and distinctive odor, and one that you would not likely mix up with vanilla if you didn't have a cold, like Anne did when she made the cake. It was also meant to be ingested, not applied topically, so it wasn't poisonous in small quantities anyway. Anodyne liniment contained all sorts of wild 19th century medicine, including lead, ammonia, ether, and opium. Well, you know, maybe if you had enough anodyne liniment, the cake would taste okay. I kind of think that might have been what was happening. Like, you know, we have pot brownies. Mrs. Allen had opium cake. You know, around the seventh bite, it starts kicking in. I don't know. She's like, I kind of like this. Here's my question. Getting back to Mrs. Allen and the cake. What do you think that Mrs. Barry would have done if Anne fed her a cake laced with anodyne liniment? Or Mrs. Lind? Well, Mrs. Lind would not have kept eating. Oh, no, she wouldn't. No. Oh, she would have dropped her fork in a hot sack. And yep. assumed correctly that it was Anne's fault and she had been feather-brained while making the cake. And she would have said exactly that way. Exactly. Anne and your feather-brained ways. Mm-hmm. She wouldn't have been tactful, but she wouldn't have been mean either. No, probably not. Yeah. I imagine her sharing some other story about somebody else who made an even worse cake on yeah. purpose. Yeah. Mrs. Barry, on the other hand, might have assumed that Anne had done it on purpose to poison her. Or if not that extreme, certainly comments about how Anne was not being raised properly. Oh yeah, Mrs. Barry couldn't help herself. She would assume the worst. Oh, absolutely the worst. Well, Marilla goes upstairs after Anne. Anne says to her that Mrs. Allen will think that Anne has poisoned her. This is not an unfounded fear. Think of how Mrs. Barry was so certain that Anne set out to intoxicate Diana on purpose, as we've noted. And Mrs. Lind told the story of an orphan girl who put strychnine in the well. Anne is used to people assuming the worst, so she is especially crushed, believing there's no way Mrs. Allen could forgive her. And she has such a role model crush on Mrs. Allen. She wants her to love her. Oh, I know. It's really especially tragic. And, you know, Anne has just experienced so much prejudice on account of being an orphan and an outsider to Avonlea and all of this that she already knows how hard it is to overcome these kinds of mistakes. Well, Mrs. Allen comes upstairs herself to console the tearful Anne. My dear little girl, you mustn't cry like this, she said, genuinely disturbed by Anne's tragic face. Why, it's all just a funny mistake that anybody might make. Oh, no, it takes me to make such a mistake, said Anne forlornly, and I wanted to have that cake so nice for you, Mrs. Allen. Yes, I know, dear, and I assure you I appreciate your kindness and thoughtfulness 
just as much as if it had turned out all right. Now, you mustn't cry anymore, but come down with me and show me your flower garden. Miss Cutbert tells me that you have a little plot all your own. I want to see it, for I'm very much interested in flowers. Anne permitted herself to be led down and comforted, reflecting that it really was providential that Mrs. Allen was a kindred spirit. Mrs. Allen so kindly diffuses the tension and redirects Anne to something that she can be proud of, her flower garden. She shows such a kindness to Anne in this moment, especially given the way these kinds of incidents have gone in the past. I love this scene so much. I love Mrs. Allen's empathy and compassion for Anne. I love how she finds something else to build Anne up so she's not spent wallowing in her error. And I think one thing in particular Mrs. Allen says is so special. She says, why, it's all just a funny mistake that anybody could make. And Anne quickly retorts with, well, no, only I could do something like this. And the beauty is that Anne is wrong here, isn't she? It is a simple mistake, a bit funny in retrospect. And of course, anyone could make a mistake like it, especially with the way Marilla fails to label her pantry items. Seriously, twice now. Twice now. (laughs) But Anne is so used to always being the one who gets in trouble that she just chalks this up as more evidence of her carelessness rather than understanding it as common human error. The grace that Mrs. Allen extends to Anne here is lovely, and it marks the beginning of a shift in Anne. After the cake incident, Anne only gets into a few more scrapes. She breaks her ankle falling off the Barry's Ridgepole, which I think we can fairly attribute to being goaded by Josie Pye. Totally Josie Pye's fault. Oh yeah. Anne dyes her hair green, and she gets caught in the sinking boat in the lake while playing Lady Elaine. And although these are all memorable moments, none of them are really due to Anne's negligence. I mean, maybe the hair dye, although goodness knows we've all been misled by promises of beauty products. It seems like Mrs. Allen's comment may have struck a chord with Anne and taught her that she's not any more mistake prone than anybody else. And I think it's that rather than all the lectures on her heedless ways from Mrs. Lynde or Marilla that seems to guide Anne. Yeah, very much Later on in the book, Anne shares that Mrs. Allen wasn't always so good as she is now either. She told me so herself. That is, she said she was a dreadful mischief when she was a girl and was always getting into scrapes. I felt so encouraged when I heard that. I think Mrs. Allen helps Anne like rewrite her story around this and like reframe this a bit. Instead of Anne thinking that getting into scrapes is just an essential part of her personality, she now sees it as something she can outgrow. Yes. Instead of lecturing Anne, Mrs. Allen shares some of her past, shows Anne that who she is as a child and the mistakes she makes are not her personality engraved in stone. Mm-hmm. She shows her that mistakes are part of becoming good, not that one must be born good or there is no hope. A message that Anne seems to have been told from many, many people around her, so much so that she believes it. Yeah. In the parlance of our times, that's growth mindset instead of fixed mindset. Ah, thank you, Mrs. Allen, coming in with the growth mindset. I know, they might not have called it that, but that's really what it is. Yeah. You believe that mistakes are part of learning and that we're all constantly growing and learning, that nothing is set in stone. It both gives you hope and perseverance, and it lets you take more chances and seize more opportunities. You really see that in the back half of the book when Mrs. Allen is more a part of Anne's life. Yeah, helping to guide Anne to reframe this narrative around her being featherbrained and daydreamy and impulsive and instead thinking about it as ways that she is learning, ways that she is growing. 
Right. And I think that Mrs. Allen sees the really good sides of Anne and that's what she keeps building up. Like similar to moving the attention from the cake to the flower garden, Mrs. Allen takes the emphasis off of, you know, being feather brained and puts it on Anne's vivid imagination and her intelligence and wit and her compassion for other people. And that more than anything is going to inspire someone to reach, to try. Yeah. When you feel like you can, you feel like it's within your scope to get there. Mrs. Allen is such a special character, and I only wish that we had a little bit more time with her. Anne grows close to Mrs. Allen, finding in her a kindred spirit. She tells Mrs. Allen about her life before Green Gables and her deep loneliness. I mean, that, who else does she tell about this? I mean, she tells Marilla, and I think she tells Diana, but so few other people really know about her past. So the fact that Anne confides that in Mrs. Allen really shows the depth of trust. Anne tells Marilla that Mrs. Allen visited her 14 times when she was stuck at home with her sprain, second only to Diana, who visited daily. And honestly, that seems extraordinary, given how busy Mrs. Allen must have been with her new home and congregation, but it speaks to her genuine affection for Anne. I just like Mrs. Allen so much. I know. (laughs) I know. I do too. (laughs) Let's pour one out for Mrs. Allen. She's the best. She's so sweet. And Anne needs every bit of sweetness in her life, doesn't she? Yeah. Throughout the rest of the book, we see these three women continue to pop up over time, influencing Anne in mostly positive ways and offering a variety of examples of conventional womanhood for Anne to learn from. We don't see Mrs. Barry often, although Anne reflects that Mrs. Barry blighted Diana's imagination following the Haunted Wood incident. Of course she did. Yeah. (laughs) And so it seems that while she opened her heart to Anne, She stayed firmly on her side of the fence regarding imagination, and she has not been inspired by Anne's fancies. Her loss. We also see that Mrs. Barry does not allow Diana to join the Queen's class, although it's not specifically specified why. We can speculate that Mrs. Barry's lack of imagination and more rigid worldview may be at play here, expecting Diana to become a traditional wife and mother and not see a reason for ongoing education. Certainly watching Diana and Anne's paths start to diverge as they get older illustrates how Anne is moving along a less conventional path than Diana, starting to follow the examples laid for her by Miss Stacy, Marilla, and Mrs. Allen, rather than looking at the Barry family for inspiration. Anne spends a lot of time at the Barrys. I'm sure she's overheard and observed much about womanhood as exemplified by Mrs. Barry, but it doesn't seem to have been meaningful to her in any way. Well, and the nice thing about Anne is we generally know what she thinks. Yes, so that is true. <laughs> Mrs. Barry does not really come up in any of Anne's conversations really going forward, tells us that she's just not that important to her. Mm-hmm. And although Anne does become a wife and mother, and that becomes the most meaningful roles in her life later on, it's not before she's had a lot of adult adventures, right? A lot of education, working on her own, you know, making her own way in the world. Mrs. Lynde, throughout the rest of Anne's time at Green Gables, is the voice of conventional judgment. But Mm. it's judgment and propriety through the lens of love and care for Anne. Yeah. Mrs. Lynn never hesitates to tell Anne that she's being scatterbrained or heedless, but she does so with a fondness that softens the sting. Whether or not you want to hear her opinion, Mrs. Lynn will give it to you. (laughs) But often what she says is on target, even if it's not tactful or asked for. Anne even notes that 
Mrs. Lind isn't exactly a comforting person sometimes, but there's no doubt she says a great many very true things. Mrs. Lind's observations, while often very accurate, do have the result of sparking the rebellious spirit in even Marilla. So Mrs. Lind's help in raising Anne may be one of in spite of rather than because of. Anne says to Marilla, I do really want to be good. And when I'm with you or Mrs. Allen or Miss Stacy, I want it more than ever. And I want to do just what would please you and what you would approve of. But mostly when I'm with Mrs. Lind, I feel desperately wicked. <laughs> and as if I wanted to go and do the very thing she tells me I oughtn't to do, I feel irresistibly tempted to do it. <laughs> and it turns out that Marilla feels the same way about Mrs. Lind. It's such a great quote and it makes me think of sort of the people who spark that like opposition in our lives too, right? You absolutely know those folks who, you know, they're not even wrong, but they're just over there. <laughs> exactly. Like, I know you're she's right and that makes wrong. it worse. <laughs> she's not wrong, but she's so convinced of being right. I don't want to do it. Mrs. Lynn doesn't hesitate to help Anne when she can. She advises Marilla to let Anne stay home after her dust-up with Mr. Phillips, giving Anne the time to go back to school in her own and avoiding a battle of the wills. And, of course, most memorably, Mrs. Lynde designs Anne the most beautiful puff-sleeve dress and observes, I suppose Merlin is trying to cultivate a spirit of humility in Anne by dressing her as she does, but it's more likely to cultivate envy and discontent. That's a very wise insight. Mrs. Lynde is even somewhat diplomatic about the dress, telling Marilla that Matthew was afraid Anne would not be surprised if Marilla made it. Both Marilla and Mrs. Lynde know that this is fiction, but it serves the purpose of Mrs. Lynde staying in her lane. I think that the delicate balance between Marilla and Mrs. Lynde's friendship is so interesting here. Clearly, these women have known each other for decades, know exactly how to proceed with each other. And Mrs. Lynde knows that by making this dress for Anne, she could be stepping on Marilla's toes. So she finds just the right way to sell it to her. And even though Marilla has a sense that maybe it didn't go exactly that way, she's willing to accept it out of friendship and understanding for what Mrs. Lynde is trying to do. Yes. I think that that's true. And I think Mrs. Lind frequently shows that while her tongue is sharp, her actions betray often her softness. I think it's interesting to see Mrs. Lind and Anne as cut by the same cloth in certain ways. Not in every way, certainly. I mean, Mrs. Lind has nowhere near the scope for imagination that Anne has, nor the ambition. But they both are wildly charismatic women, and they both have these flares of energy and temper that can sometimes set them up badly in the eyes of other people. They manage to kind of push through, ultimately be very winsome. Yeah. So it's interesting to kind of see how they're alike in that way, too. They both managed to walk that line of, with Mrs. Lind, it's tipping into being rude. Mm -hmm. With Anne, it kind of tips into being careless. Yeah. But they can walk that line and pull it back. And most people end up loving them for the thing that be, yes, right, that they kind of are balancing on. Anne spends a great deal of time with Mrs. Allen over the next few years. And Marilla, Matthew, and Mrs. Lind all observe how grown up, responsible, and reliable Anne becomes. At this time in her life, these middle years before she goes to Queens, Anne has both Miss Stacy and Mrs. Allen inspiring her. Miss Stacy inspiring her with education and ambition, and Mrs. Allen inspiring her with compassion and religious faith. Anne says, Mrs. Allen said we ought to always try to influence other people for good. 
She talks so nice about everything. I never knew before that religion was such a cheerful thing. I always thought it was kind of melancholy, but Mrs. Allen isn't, and I'd like to be a Christian if I could be one like her. I can just feel she's glad she's a Christian and that she'd be one even if she could get to heaven without it. Mm. This is a big revelation for Anne in terms of religion. At the very beginning of the book, Marilla reflected that Anne doesn't believe in God because she's never had his love translated to her through the medium of human love. Well, I think that Mrs. Allen is that correction for Anne. Instead of lecturing about goodness, Mrs. Allen lives her goodness with gladness. And that is what is inspiring to Anne. In one of our early recap episodes, we spoke about young Anne's desire to be either beautiful, clever, or good. And over the course of this book, we see how Miss Stacy and Mrs. Allen give Anne the tools she needs to sharpen her mind and hone her sense of morality. Maud doesn't show us too many of Anne's conversations with Mrs. Allen. We just know that Anne confides in the minister's wife and spends a great deal of time at the manse where the Allens live. It's clear that Mrs. Allen is a dear friend and mentor, and she appears at another critical juncture in Anne's story. Following Matthew's death, Mrs. Allen consoles Anne. She says, when Matthew was here, he liked to hear you laugh, and he liked to know that you found pleasure in the pleasant things around you, said Mrs. Allen gently. He is just away now, and he likes to know it just the same. I'm sure we should not shut our hearts against the healing influences that nature offers us. But I can understand your feeling. I think we all experience the same thing. We resent the thought that anything can please us when someone we love is no longer here to share the pleasure with us. And we almost feel as if we were unfaithful to our sorrow when we find our interest in life returning to us. Anne goes on a little bit here. She winds down and she says to Mrs. Allen, I must go home now. Marilla is all alone and she gets lonely at twilight. She will be lonelier still, I fear, when you go away to college said Mrs. Allen. And once again, Mrs. Allen has planted a seed for Anne. Anne walks home slowly after this conversation, and a few days later, Anne tells Marilla that she's going to stay in Avonlea and teach instead of going to Redmond College in the fall. In our Marilla episode, we discussed how Anne's decision to postpone college for a couple of years to help support Marilla was not an act of sacrifice, but an act of love for Marilla and Green Gables and Matthew's memory. Mrs. Allen seems to have instinctively understood that Anne and Marilla would need each other in the years following the loss of Matthew, and she gently steered Anne in that direction. After years of neglect and the only women in her life being the harried, neglectful, and possibly cruel Mrs. Thomas and Mrs. Hammond, Anne gets to be surrounded by so many lovely women, providing Anne with support and guidance and models of womanhood. Even her rocky relationship with Mrs. Barry heals and gives her ample room to develop her friendship with Diana, no small gift. Avonlea might be a small town, but the community embraces Anne through the vehicle of these three women. As we wander down the birch path in this episode, we were wondering about the politics of this time period. On the fateful night of Minnie May's illness, we know that most of the Avonlea adults were away at a political event. Politics, then as now, seems to have been a hot-button conversation among the neighbors. When Anne of Green Gables takes place in the 1870s, Prince Edward Island had only recently become part of the Canadian Confederation. Prior to 1873, PEI was a British colony, and prior to that, a French colony. Before European colonizers came to the island in the early 1600s, it was a part of the lands belonging to the Mi'kmaq people. By the start of the book, 
PEI has only been a part of Canada for a short while, and many of its white inhabitants are of English and French descent. Politics and religion would have been the major cultural divides, and in fact, political affiliation often fell along Catholic or Protestant lines at this time. Anne is naturally curious about politics, as she's curious about all things, having heard Mrs. Lynde voice her opinions. In a conversation with Matthew, Anne says, Mrs. Lynde says that Canada is going to the dogs the way things are being run at Ottawa, and that it's an awful warning to the electors. She says if women were allowed to vote, we would soon see a blessed change. What way do you vote, Matthew? Conservative, said Matthew promptly. To vote conservative was part of Matthew's religion. Then I'm conservative too, said Anne decidedly. I'm glad, because guilt, because some of the boys at school are grits. I guess Mr. Phillips is a grit too, because Prissy Andrews' father is one. And Ruby Gillis says that when a man is courting, he always has to agree with the girl's mother in religion and her father in politics. Is that true, Matthew? Well, now, I don't know, said Matthew. Oh, Matthew. I know. <laughs> don't ask him about courting Anne. <laughs> so we know that Matthew is a conservative or what would have been called a Tory. Mr. Lind, presumably he votes as his wife tells him to. Is I'm a sure liberal. he does. <laughs> so the Lynns are liberals or grits, and so is Gil Gilbert's father. Later in Anne of Avonlea, Maud tells us that Diana's father was a liberal and that Anne has remained aligned with conservative politics out of loyalty to Matthew. For that reason, Anne and Diana rarely discussed politics. So we know that there's some diversity of political thought in the neighborhood, but it doesn't seem to stand in the way of friendships. And now this may be that while there were differences in the parties, they were both still centrist, Tories being center-right and Grits being center-left. One of the main divisions between Tories and Grits through the 1870s and 1890s was their view toward the British monarchy. Tories were pro-monarchy and Grits wanted more independence from the monarchy. However, both parties were concerned with building Canada's national power by expanding the land through further colonization and displacement of indigenous people and by building up military might. So they're both essentially nationalist parties, right? And yeah. it's just sort of like, do we want to be nationalist Canadians or nationalist subjects of Britain, I think is what was going on at the time. So the Tories were more closely aligned with Protestant voters, while Catholics, including the small Acadian population, were more likely to vote liberal. But both parties had voters from both religious groups, and politics on the island both then and now has never been sectarian. What's interesting is there's a whole Wikipedia entry about election records for Prince Edward Island. I did yeah. a deep dive. <laughs> and it turns out that between 1873 and 1890, so that's kind of the period we're looking at through much of these first few books, conservatives were the party in power. But following the election of 1893, liberals took back power for a time. And then up until the 2019 election, PEI was a two-party system with the pendulum swinging somewhat predictably between the liberal and conservative parties every couple of years. But then in 2019, and I think this is so interesting, the Green Party became a major voting block in PE. Wow, okay. Well, and I really think this has to do with where Prince Edward Island is geographically. You know, they're in the Canadian Maritimes, very far north, and I think they are probably experiencing a lot of kind of the canary in the coal mine warnings around climate change. Sure. Uh, so absolutely they would want to... I could see that they want to be more aligned with a party that's going to focus on environmental issues. And then although the women of Avonlea, certainly Mrs. Lynde, have political opinions, they actually couldn't vote for many more years. 
there wasn't even an organized movement for women's suffrage in Canada until the 1880s. In 1917, women who were not Asian or Indigenous and who were married to or the mothers of men serving in World War I, or who were serving themselves, were given the right to vote. Okay, so oh. do, you, do you see all oh. the hoops you had to go through to be able to vote as a woman in 1917? Right. First of like all, you, you could be Asian. Right, you only, your vote only counts if you were married to a person serving or the mother of a person serving. Like your opinion doesn't count otherwise, right? Pretty and much. you can't be Asian or Indigenous, which- Okay. Oh, yeah. And that's that I will say is very interesting. Because although in 1922, Prince Edward Island expanded that suffrage right to all women, again, they excluded women who were Asian or Indigenous. And Asian women and Indigenous women were granted the right to vote much later on. I think Asian women was after World War II. And I think for Indigenous women throughout Canada, it has been sort of a slow trickle depending on which sort of affiliation they have and what territories that they're living in. It's, Whoa. Yeah. Canada's relationship with the First Nations people is real wild. Not to say that we're doing any better in the U.S. We obviously are not. <laughs> right. We're not necessarily a model. No, no, no. Not I, even I didn't know a lot of that. Yeah. But I think for Anne, it's really noteworthy that she only would have been allowed to vote as early as 1917 because her sons were serving in the military. And then the thing I found most exciting and interesting about politics on Prince Edward Island is that even to this day, their political system is the closest we have to a direct democracy in North America. Okay. Yeah. Due to the small population on the island, a very small number of votes can significantly sway an election, and people usually know their elected representatives, if not personally, then through friends or colleagues. Yeah, it makes sense that a small community, you would be very close to your elected officials, and you don't have the voting for the people who are going to vote for the officials type scenario. Right. Exa exactly right. And I think that they have for the size of the population, they have quite a number of elected re representatives. So provincial elections are not fought out over television advertisements or robocalls or texts. I don't know about you, but I've been getting so many texts. I would love to the not November have election upcoming election texts coming to my phone, but. Oh, it's driving me crazy. So if we lived on PEI, that apparently would be much less of an issue because the districts are small enough that candidates go house to house and generally meet all of their constituents personally. Oh. Don't, isn't that amazing? That's very cool. Because of this, voter turnout and engagement in PEI is very high. Well, isn't that our big complaint in America is that people don't vote because they feel like their vote doesn't matter? Right. You and they live don't on know this small representatives. Community. Yeah. If you live on this small community and your vote really does count, it really can help sway an election either way, of course, you're going to be more engaged. Right. And I think another thing that happens is because it's a small area, you really are seeing sort of the results of any candidate you're voting for. Things aren't happening at the national election level. Things are happening off in Ottawa. Mm -hmm. <laughs> capital <laughs> things are happening off, often off in Ottawa that they're not seen directly in PEI but your provincial representatives are all right there mm -hmm. one of the things that I thought was really interesting is after a major hurricane in 2003 there was no electricity on the island and it was very hard to get ever anywhere you know trees were down roads were down and there was an election coming up and even with all of that infrastructure going down there was still 80 percent voter turnout 
what could you imagine we would be delighted with 80 percent voter turnout on the best most amazing incredible day I feel like in the U.S. you could literally have people giving you a ride to your polling place in a limousine and you still wouldn't get 80% voter turnout. (laughs) You can see how this love of politics is threaded through these books. Politics is a major part of the fabric of everyday life in Avonlea and on Prince Edward Island. Yeah. And if the premier hadn't been coming to town, there would be no way that Anne would have gotten to save Minnie May. And then what? I mean, thank goodness. Thank goodness for the premiere coming to town. Well, now let's put on our puffed sleeves, maybe ones like Mrs. Lynn makes for Anne, and talk about some special moments we love related to these three Avonlea women. Kelly, you got any favorite insights to share? So one thing that I noticed in my reread for this episode is how often Mrs. Allen and Mrs. Lind are set next to, but apart from each other in the text. And what I think was going on is that Maud was using Mrs. Allen as a way to bring Mrs. Lind into the story more just for comedic purposes. Hmm. Because without fail, anytime Anne mentions an instance of Mrs. Allen's kindness or sweetness, there's always a contrasting story about Mrs. Lind. And that example that you gave about how Anne was saying, well, when she's with Miss Stacy or Mrs. Allen or Marilla, that she feels like she wants to be a better person, but being around Mrs. Lind makes her feel wicked. That's a perfect example of that. And then it happens all throughout the book. I mean, once you start seeing it, you can't unsee it. So there's this other moment where Marilla is saying to herself, I don't care if Mrs. Allen does say she's the brightest and sweetest child she ever knew. She may be bright and sweet enough, but her head is full of nonsense and there's never any knowing what shape it'll break out in next. But there, here I am saying the very thing I was so riled with Rachel Lind for saying at the aid today. I was real glad when Mrs. Allen spoke up for Anne and if she hadn't, I know I'd have said something too sharp to Rachel before everybody. And my sort of mental picture of this moment is that Marilla is in like an angel and devil on her shoulders situation <laughs> with Mrs. Allen on one shoulder and Mrs. Lind on the other. And that's really how they're kind of poised, you know, together, but in opposition in so sure. many of these little vignettes in the book. Well, Mrs. And- Allen is always seeing the best of yes. in someone and inspiring from that way. And Mrs. Lind always goes to the worst case scenario first. Mm-hmm. Or the place where she can offer uh, tips and room for improvement. Yes. <laughs> so one other example that I'll leave you with, although truly, if you go back and start looking for it, there are so many more in the book, is that when Anne was telling Marilla that she felt very comforted when Mrs. Allen told her that she also got into lots of mischief as a girl, but then that Mrs. Lind also told Anne that she was always shocked to hear of naughtiness, even in very young children. And I'm yes. Sh- and you know what I love about that passage is she talks about how A minister had once said that when he was a little boy, he had stolen a tart and Mrs. Lind could never see the minister and respect the minister. And you're like, dude, he was probably six. He was a child. Yes. When he stole a treat right off the kitchen counter. And yet she's holding him against it as if ministers, well, I think this goes back to, Ooh, okay. Making a connection goes back to growth mindset versus fixed mindset. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mrs. Lind is thinking of people as fixed. So a man who is good enough to be a minister should have been good enough from the very moment he was born. Mm-hmm. And of course that's not true. Our personalities and- aren't fixed that way. 
And you would really hope that Mrs. Lynde would have a little bit more understanding of that, considering she apparently has 10 children somewhere. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we can speculate about that later. Maybe they <laughs> sold too many tarts. I don't know. For me, I also have to bring up a Mrs. Lynde thing. Oh, and I yeah. Can't... She's, she's so quotable. We can't not. Oh, she really is. And she really is this constant comedic force unintentionally. I don't think she would think of herself as funny. Oh, no. No. She takes herself seriously, which is part of the fun. So Mrs. Lynde has this last little quip right at the very, very end of the book. As Anne gives up going to college to stay with Marilla, we get one last opinion from Mrs. Lynde. She says, well, Anne, I hear you've given up your notion of going to college. I was real glad to hear it. You've You've got as much education now as a woman can be comfortable with. I don't believe in girls going to college with the men and cramming their heads full of Latin and Greek and all that nonsense. And of course, used to Mrs. Lynn by now, responds by saying, oh no, she still intends to keep up her study and cram her head full of Latin and Greek all the same. She laughs, laughs a little at Mrs. Lynn, who takes it in stride. Yeah. And then Miss, yeah. And then Mrs. Lynn shares the happy news that Anne has gotten the Avonlea school and won't have to commute to Carmody. Mrs. Lynn may have observed at one point that Marilla has gotten mellow, thanks to Anne, but it's clear that her interactions with Anne have mellowed Mrs. Lynde as well. Right. She doesn't fight Anne on it, right? So if Anne's going to go ahead and cram her head full of Latin and Greek, that's, I guess that's Anne's business. Mm -hmm. And that shows some growth for Mrs. Lynde. Yeah. Although I have to wonder, what do you think she was more upset by? The Latin and Greek or the going to college with the men? Oh, I think it was the mixing and mingling with the men. With the men, yeah. The Latin and Greek (laughs) is sort of like extra. Yeah. That just adds flavor. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think it's also a little bit of why would you need that? Everything you need is here in Avonlea. Why would you need Latin and Greek? Why would you need Latin and Greek? Mrs. Berry doesn't make her daughters take Latin and Greek. No. (laughs) So today our inspired buys are inspired by our Avonlea ladies. Reagan, how are you inspired today? I'm inspired by Mrs. Allen. Mrs. Allen invites Anne to tea shortly following the liniment cake moment. And Anne is aglow with joy and gushes about how grown up she felt at tea with Mrs. Allen. So I'm going to suggest going to a high tea. Many fancy-ish hotels offer a high tea experience and so do lots of tea rooms. Kelly and I have been to quite a few together. And if you know a young child, try taking them to a children's tea. Yes, children's tea are the best. Kelly actually introduced Alice and I to our favorite holiday tradition when Alice was only three, the teddy bear tea at the Langham Huntington Hotel in Pasadena. The three of us get dressed up a little fancy. We have an (laughs) elegant tea with mimosas as well as tea for the grownups and a fancy pot of hot chocolate for Alice. Alice, every year, it she's committed to filling her teacup up with mini marshmallows first and then pouring the hot chocolate over the mini marshmallows. Oh, yes. She talks about it weeks in advance. It's so funny. We get to eat tiny little sandwiches and scones. Alice's are all cut into teddy bear shapes and beautiful desserts served on elegant china. And Alice absolutely loves this experience. She looks forward to it every year. Kelly and I look forward to it every year. Mm -hmm. And she does feel so lovely and grown-up-ish going to tea with us. And she always rises to the occasion. Mm -hmm. So even though she crams her 
tiny little fancy teacup full of marshmallows and hot chocolate. She never spilled it. No, she's, well, she's always well-behaved. So whether you go with other grown-ups or with a child, a fancy tea experience makes us all feel proper and grown up. <laughs> so how about you, Kelly? What is inspiring you? I mean, ugh, high tea is just one of my all-time favorite things. So I co-sign that heartily. But I was thinking about one of the things that I really love about watching the movie adaptations of Anna Green Gable are the women's fashion and watching what all the women are wearing and just seeing all that beautiful like Victorian and Edwardian era fashion from the the hats to the bustle skirts and gosh like the beautiful knitwear and like lace they're all wearing it just I love it I love historical movies and tv shows I could you know sometimes I just have that kind of thing on as back in the background so I can just admire it so of course not a far stretch for me uh, to want to dress like that myself whenever possible. And although opportunities to dress in full Victorian garb do not arise all the time, Halloween is definitely a time when you can indulge and other things might come up where you might want to dress up like an Avonlea lady. So I want to recommend a internet store called Recollections. The website is recollections.biz. This store is incredible. They sell period costumes from all sorts of different historical eras, from the Regency, like Jane Austen times, to like Pioneer Old West or Civil War, to flappers and 1950s era to suffragette costumes. And of course, they lean really extra hard into sort of Victorian era fashions. So if you want to dress like Mrs. Lind or Mrs. Barry or Mrs. Allen, believe me, you will find a dress here. And the other thing I love, love, love about this store is they are size inclusive. They carry sizes, women's sizes two to size 32. So you will find a dress that fits you and they're not that expensive. They're not cheap, cheap, but they're not hundreds and hundreds of dollars. I've ordered a few dresses from them for like Jane Austen conventions and Halloween and things like that. And the quality is really lovely and it just makes you feel like you're just stepping out of a movie. Love this website. Oh my gosh, everything is so pretty. It really is. I love this website. And of course, size inclusive. So, you know, you and all your friends can wear this. Everyone so, deserves to look this pretty. We are not promoted by them. But if they want to support us or advertise with us, they're certainly welcome to. But the website is recollections.biz. Please follow and review us wherever you listen to podcasts so other kindred spirits can find us as well. Join us next time as we discuss the one lady conspicuously missing from this episode, the incredible Miss Josephine Berry. Seriously, how did she get so rich? Miss Josephine Berry fan fiction may be ahead. <laughs> Thanks everyone for joining us. 